Okay. Any thoughts, questions, complaints, haiku um, from the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Simeon. Here's my coffee. I need my coffee. So you talked about a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. Mm. Could you expound on the resurrection of death? Resurrection of death. Um, Seb, can you look up second resurrection? No, second death. Go to Revelation on the 20. Um, maybe it is 19. Okay. It's 20 or 9. It's Revelation late in the book. Uh, hold on. But basically what the Bible teaches is this, that um, after, after Christ returns, all the dead will be raised. Some will be raised into life, um, in which case Jesus' own body after the resurrection is the protocos, is the type, is the first fruits of that resurrection. But even the corrupt will be raised. And what's terrible about this is God will give them an indestructible body and then spend eternity destroying them. Basically, he will give them a form that can withstand or can absorb his wrath and not just be vaporized. And that is the resurrection of the unjust. Um, it's, it's a terrible concept to give, to give someone an, an indestructible form and then pour out the fury of an almighty God upon them forever. So Revelation 11, 20, 11 through 15. Okay, yeah. So, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Again, we don't understand how holy and awesome God is. This next phrase always gets me. Him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The earth and the sky are like, get me out of here. And they got nowhere to go. And this lawyer wants to test. test. Anyway. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the thrones. The resurrection here has taken place. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead. So the, the waiting room of hell, or the waiting room, there's a, there's a place of torment right now. It is not hell in its full sense. That's where the rich man was. Um, we're going to see hell's waiting room will empty itself into hell a little later in this passage. Um, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each, accord, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the other resurrection. And it's a terrible co concept. I mean, this is, again, a teaching that the, the, the Western church is trying to minimize, the notion of eternal conscious suffering of the of the damned, of the lost. Um, we want to just talk about hell as being separation from God. Well, there's a sense in which hell is separation from God, but there are people today who just want to make it that. This is if, just so if you go off, go off into a corner by yourself, you know, 
Yeah, go to go to Revelation. Um, is it fourteen? Go to Revelation fourteen. Um, there's a very real sense in which you'll be away from God's presence in hell. You'll be away from His mercy. You'll be away from His loving kindness. You'll be away from His patience. You'll be away from His forgiveness. There's a very another real sense where you will be. God will be present in hell. It's not as though God made this really awful machine, this torture chamber that punishes people. No, God is is present as the one administering the discipline, the punishment. In Revelation 14, um, oh, where does it start? Um, verse 9, thank you, Zeb. And another angel, a third following them, said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is the terrible, terrible truth that the Bible reveals of, of what's at stake, which gets back to what, what do I have to do to not have that happen is probably, forget probably, is the most significant and important question you'll ever consider. Um, not how do I get the new smartphone, but that. So, um, is that, you got more questions or is that, is that, do you want more bad news or is that enough bad news? That's a lot of bad news, but yeah. Yeah. one thing I had heard on, and granted this is not the most profitable source, but If you podcast, say Oprah. No, I said podcast. So oh, it's just okay. as bad, but not um, quite. <laughs> okay. So they had a, a speaker on and he was talking about how he holds two when you die, you die. And so the eternal death is actual death. And so what is, how do, how do you get to that and yeah, yeah. this? And what, where's the difference? And what is the significance of the difference? Because there should be a significant difference. Oh, there is. Yeah. And that's a huge point. Let me, let me see what your friends, what this person, whoever it is, was ascribing is what's called annihilationism. There are various versions of it. Some hold that there will be a period of time in hell. But the concept is that at some point, whether it's immediately or whether it's after a thousand years or after four years, at some point, the suffering of those in hell will stop because they will cease to be. At some point, they will be annihilated. That is, that's all versions of annihilationism share that in common. So for some, it sounds like the guy you were talking to, you know, the second you're dead, you're done. Here's the problem with that view. Um, it, it absolutely destroys the holiness of God. It guts it and sees it out. Um, that may sound like a strange thing to say, but what we get, if you go to Revelation 5, i got to switch my other Bible. I'm breaking in a new Bible, but I don't know my way around it nearly as well as I do this one, but the font size on this one is starting to get a bit small in the pulpit. So... Um, so for a while, you'll see me with two Bibles, that's why. Um, but go, go to Revelation 5. Yeah, oh yeah. No, Revelation 6, I'm sorry. Revelation 6. What we get, what we see, is anyone who draws close to God and begins to grasp His holiness does not ask 
How, how can you be so mean to these nice people? Rather, it flips it around. And what we get is in verse 9, He opened the fifth seal, and I saw unto the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out for judgment. How, how much longer? They're amazed at his grace and mercy and patience. So let, let me, let me um, explain what I mean. The gospel is the promise that we can escape God's wrath. That God is angry at sin and sinners. We often can make them say, God hates the sin, not the sinner. God casts sinners, not sin, into hell. I, I get what people try to mean when they say that, but you don't want to communicate somehow it's not people he's mad at. It is. Who said that? I, who's, who's the first person who said Gandhi, that? Gandhi. Not a Christian. There we go. Yes. Gandhi. There we go. All right. Um, and um, so, so, sorry to get me off my train of thought. So that's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. So, um, okay. So the gospel is we can escape God's wrath, right? If annihilationism is true, then that becomes gospel as well. You can escape God's wrath. You've incurred a punishment that you will never have to pay. You can escape payment. You can you can rob the store and never have to return what you stole. You never have to. There's no comeuppance. There's no balancing the scales. You thwarted and defied and raised your fist at a holy God, and nothing happened. He just didn't give you a good thing. He didn't give you a blessing. He didn't give you a gift. But you escape. And what that ultimately then means is apparently God's justice and holiness isn't that valuable. Let me let me give you an illustration that um, I think helps set a trajectory that can make this make sense. Because I fully grant, we don't see the holiness of God, and so we look at an eternal conscious torment, and we think, let's be honest, we're tempted to think, it kind of looks like overkill. right? I mean, it, it, we're not right in thinking that, but I think all of us, um, I think all of us at times, if we're honest, people sin against God for a finite period of time, they don't sin infinitely. They sin over 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. And yet, um, that somehow is going to deserve an eternal... I mean, think of, I mean, think of eternal. Think of three trillion years in, you haven't scratched the surface. I mean, think about it. And, <laughs> and so how, how does that work? Let me, let me set up a trajectory that I think helps make some sense of this. Uh, this is not original to me. A friend of mine, um, Carl, mom, the Carl, um, friend of mine from Word of Life, threw this out. God gave us an implicit understanding of justice um, through our conscience, and our laws bear this out. So in our country, if I take a baseball bat, if I swing that baseball bat in an unlawful way so as to damage something that is not mine, and I break your mailbox, what type of penalty will I face? Well, so I take a baseball bat, What's going to happen? Some fines? Maybe some community service at most, right? Okay. I take that same baseball bat. I swing it in an unlawful way so as to damage property that's not mine, and I smash your windshield and hood of your car. Now, what's going to happen to me? 
I may actually, I may actually serve a little time in jail. I'll almost certainly do some community service and I'll pay a much bigger fine. Okay, take the same baseball bat, swing it in an unlawful way so as to damage property that's not mine and take someone's kneecaps out intentionally. Now what? I'm serving time in jail, right? I'm serving time in jail. Take the same baseball bat, swing it in the same way in an unlawful way so as to damage something that is not mine and I smash someone's skull and kill them. In some states they'll put me to death. In every instance, all I've done is made an unlawful swing of a baseball bat, damaging, breaking something that is not mine. Why does the punishment raise? Because, because the punishment corresponds to the value of the object transgressed. We get that intuitively. We get that intuitively. Then, and so I, what I'm suggesting then is at least a rational argument, that even if emotionally we struggle with this, the reason we emotionally struggle with this is because we simultaneously struggle with comprehending how valuable and holy God is. But you can see that the higher God's holiness goes up, the higher the corresponding consequence does as well. The, the two are related. And so the same Bible that insists God is holy, holy, holy. I mean, get this. Angels, that if, if every time an angel shows up, what's the first thing they say? Don't be, fear not. These are beings that when you read through the revelation of John, twice he starts to worship. And they're like, no, stop that, stop. <laughs> that, that's how awesome, and, and they're not like, you see these paintings, little babies with wings. No, we're reading through Ezekiel. they got like four heads and eyes all over. And the, these are some awesome, frightening, mighty beings who wipe out entire armies in a, in a, in, you know, before breakfast. Um, and... Uh, these beings are in front of God and they cover their eyes because they dare not look upon the holiness of God and they cover their feet and they fly around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they were doing that hundreds of years before Jesus came in Ezekiel. They did that in John's day and I don't think they were stopping in between and taking a break. That We don't grasp how holy God is. And so, even if now we struggle emotionally with the concept of eternal conscious suffering, what I do trust and believe is that when we see him, we will not be having any more angst or confusion anymore at that point. That everything I see is every time people see God, they're not going, oh, but those nice people, they're saying, how on earth does your wrath and punishment delay? How on earth can you put up with people defying you. That, that's what they're asking. So um, I, I, would, I would say I think it's very understandable that we struggle with that. And to some degree, if someone's like, no, I'm really happy about the doctrine of hell, something's probably wrong. On the other hand, I do believe that when we see him, we will not, that, that, that confusion will go away. Um, and the more we study and see God's holiness now, the, the, the lesser that struggle will become. Any, anyone want to say anything or jump in on that at all? Yes, Elsa. I think it was Paul Washer that said... Um, oh dear, you're going to do the Paul Washer quote. That... that um, I know this one. You will see, for example, your mother going to hell, and you'll say, yes, that's just. That's just a really hard truth. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I, I do believe yeah. that is true. At the, what the judgment, there will be an audience, and the audience will not be mixed. It will roar with approval. And but I, telling people that now is just hard. That, I, but, yeah. Yeah, oh, no, no. I'm just saying, if you wrestle that now, if you're thinking of someone in particular, weep. That's 
fine, that you're not doing anything and, wrong. And to me, you know, that's a motivation to bring the gospel. Because if you think somebody who's not saved, that that is going to be, no matter if you dislike that person, yeah. that is going to be their end. It is horrifying. And that should motivate us to bring the gospel to them. Right. Well, let me, actually, let me do the Paul Washer quote. He, he says even more hardcore. He was at a youth conference, I heard, and he was telling these youth, if you somehow have this notion, I'm going to teach my parents, I'm going to show them, I'm going to go to hell, and then they're going to be sorry. He says, understand that when God pronounces you guilty and you take your first step into hell, the noise, the deafening noise that you hear will be the roar of approval of all creation praising God for doing away with the likes of you. Yeah, Paul Wash is hardcore. Um, yeah. Um, Sorry, if we're gonna if we're gonna mention Paul Washer in that quote, you gotta do the full quote. Um, but and, no, and, and and understood properly, and not said flippantly. That is true. Um, of course, with things like this, you don't want to just throw them around because Paul, because the Apostle Paul can also say, and this is where biblical truth comes into balance. I myself could wish myself accursed for the sake of my kinsmen. Paul is not praising God that his kinsmen who reject Christ are going to hell. He's saying, I could almost wish myself sent to hell that they might be saved. Moses, blot my name out of your book of life. Don't punish them. I mean, so I, truth has to be put in tension. And so a person who's all judge the wicked without that other thread, something's out of balance. You know what I mean? And so I, <laughs> you want to be careful with this stuff because, you know, um, you get it out of balance. You, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he praises his father for blinding wise people. You know, and we just say, amen, worship. I don't get it, but okay. Um, any other thoughts on this? It's heavy stuff. Yeah, Lee. Oh, no, no, the microphone. Lee. It's Play not the technically rules. on this, but it's kind of related because it's about punishment. Um, <laughs> how about that, since we're on such a happy Christmassy thought? Um, <laughs> Um, I was reading uh, Romans, and it's the third chapter, and it says uh, oh, about God presenting Christ as a sacrifice, and that it, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, mm -hmm. he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as, I'm, I'm assuming he means before Christ, and I didn't, I don't know, I don't get it. Oh, let me know. This, you just you just put the ball right over the plate for me. This is that was, this just that was, thank you, Lee. That was wonderful. Well, philosophers philosophers deal with the problem of evil, and the technical term, if you want to sound smart, is theodicy. Just the problem of evil, and it tries to grapple with how can God be good, how can God be all powerful, and how can evil be? How can all three of those things happen? And what's what's amazing about this passage? Let's look at this. Turn to Romans. Turn to Romans three is Paul deals with theodicy, and it's upside down from the way most people deal with it. And this, this just precisely lines up with the point I was trying to make in, in, in Revelation 6. So thank you, Lee. Whether you intended to or not, this is going to fit well. Um, so let's pick it up, Romans 3, verse 21. Paul is going to answer the problem of evil right here. He's gonna, he recognizes this is a problem with evil, and it needs an, an answer, it needs to be accounted for, it needs to be reckoned, and it needs to be seen to be answered. It's just not the problem that you and I think it is. But now, the righteousness of God, verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. ESV, a big $5 word for a, a something that soaks up, absorbs, removes wrath. Propitiation is that which expiates, that which um, removes, placates, fills up wrath. That's what propitiation means. He's put forward publicly. That word public is important. Who God put forward is propitiation. By, sorry, public's not there yet. Sorry, it comes up. Sorry. Um, as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness. God did this to demonstrate, to show, to put on display his righteousness. Which is to say, he did this lest anyone think he was unrighteous. He did this, I think Paul's going to say in a second, to prove he's not unrighteous. Why? Because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. The problem of the evil that Paul anticipates is not why do bad things happen to nice people. The problem of evil is this. How can God be holy and just and not damn every one of us to hell the second we enter this world? How does God pass over sins? How does God let Ahab live a moment how does God let you and I live a picosecond? How is there justice in the universe if that happens? Very different perspective on the problem of evil. How can a righteous God know what we think, know what we do, know what we say, and let us wake up the next morning? And the answer in part is that Jesus had to be publicly killed on a, out in the open on Golgotha, not in some back room, so that all the universe would know God takes sin seriously, that God doesn't just look the other way, that God doesn't just sort of sweep it under the rug. And the problem of evil gets resolved in Jesus' death. The problem that God is righteous and we still exist is not the way we generally come at the problem. But that's what Paul writes. This was done to show God's righteousness because in his divine fair parents it, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I mean, this is the dilemma most of us don't wrestle with. We, we think of God being justifier. God forgives, but how can God be both just and justifier? How can God say, I punish every offense, I don't look the other way ever, and I forgive people? Which is what God says when he meets with Moses at Sinai in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, but who will by no means for, forgive the, the wicked. How does that work? I don't know if Moses understood how it worked, but a couple thousand years later on a hill outside of Jerusalem, we see perfect justice, perfect love. We see God being just, he punishes sin, and he's the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Um, so, yeah, thanks for putting the ball right on the plate, Lee. That, that, was, that was great. That helper, you, still, you still got questions. That's his argument, is he did this. Jesus was publicly killed in the sight of all the world and all the angels and all the demons, lest anyone think, you're not so holy, God, because you... you Abraham lied about his wife, and Abraham did all these things, and he slept with his handmaid, and, and you let him get into heaven. Only because my son paid for his sin. Only because of that. We care.
Um, so is this all because of God being out of outside of time? Because those people, like you say, Abraham and David, all the people that screwed up big time, all of you know us that came, lived and died. Then what happened? They're just kind of on hold, and you know, hanging out, waiting for things. Or no, another another good question. In one sense, um, biblically, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and God's plan of salvation was enacted and agreed upon before the worlds began. So in Titus one two, we read about the promise of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began, and you're pretty much, if you think it through, having to be dealing with one member of the Trinity promising something to another, almost certainly the Son promising to redeem these people the Father gave to him. So so when one member of the Trinity commits to do something to another member of the Trinity, the Father can act as if it's done. My Son has agreed to come and pay the price for these people so I can give them the benefits I can. Now, even with that said, and again, some of this stuff, because hell is a waiting room, heaven seems to have a waiting room as well, a place of, of relief. You get this from the parable of, or the story of the rich man of Lazarus, what they call Abraham's side. So in Ephesians, go to Ephesians 4. Um, so one of the pictures of what Jesus does in, um, in the ascension, the resurrection, is he takes a train of captives in his train. So, so a, a conquering king, as he returns home, would have in his train and his royal procession all these captured people. And, and the more powerful, the better. So, so that language is used of Paul. Paul was this Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's going to go around and get beaten for Jesus' name, preaching the gospel. He's, he's like a prize. you know. And so in Ephesians 4, um, we read this. Um, verse 9. In saying he ascended... Oh, no, go back even further, sorry. Uh, verse 6. One God, one Father over all, who is over all and through all in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So when Jesus ascended on high and into the real Holy of Holies, which the, which the um, physical Holy of Holies and the temple shroud was only a picture of, he brought with him a host of men captives. Um, in saying he descended, what does it mean? But it also that he descended into the lowest regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So, so Jesus brings with him those he paid for and he brings them into the presence of the Lamb. So, so this heaven's waiting room of Abraham's bosom is now emptied and people are brought in. So there is a sense in which until the payment is actually done, the full reward cannot be given, which is part of the reason why until Jesus actually makes the payment and ascends into heaven, the spirit isn't given to everybody. The, the adoption is sons. David is never calling God father. Israel corporately is God's son. And Israel corporately, Solomon praying for Israel, you are our father. No individual Israelite ever calls God dad, Abba. So there are tremendous new covenant blessings that only come this side of the full payment. But prior to the full payment, the Father is willing, pleased, to pass over, trusting in anticipation of the payment of the Son, those sins, so that Abraham doesn't spend some time in hell until Jesus dies. That make sense? Okay. Elsa. I've been studying Hebrews with John MacArthur. Uh-oh. And um, 
Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Yes. If you look at the last two verses there, um, he explained that um, exactly what you've just said, that because in, Good for in, him. in that chapter they explain all about... <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That's terrible. That's terrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you know, when he goes through the faith chapter, he talks about Abram and David and all I'll the say three Hale MacArthur's and I'll be okay. Anyway. <laughs> I went to John MacArthur's school. I love John MacArthur. I'm just teasing Elsa. That's fine. Go Elsa. Um, Go Elsa. And he said in those two verses, right at the end of chapter 11, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Mm. Mm. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So they were looking forward to the cross in mm. faith, to a promise, yeah. and we are looking back to a fact. That's yeah. what he said. Right. We, there, there was a promise and a shadow and an a image, something ahead that was blurry, and as more and more scripture is written, came more and more into focus. We, we see it for what it is now, and we get the full benefit and the full payment and the full gifts being given as a result of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. Twelve minutes. Any other questions? Or anyone want to run with this any further? I mean, good grief. Happy Christmas topic, Simeon. No problem. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody? Any other non-hell related questions? <laughs> okay. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> no, I, I, let me take a minute and then just talk about that one last thing about the difference between um, Jesus' response to this man and Jesus' response to other people. Because there are plenty of examples in the gospel where Jesus does not take people to the law. Jesus takes people to himself. You think of the man in John um, 8, Jesus heals from blindness and he's then cast out of the synagogue and Jesus comes to him and he says have you believed in the son of man and oh Lord who is the son of man that I might believe on him he says I speak to him he doesn't take him a while I think of the Samaritan woman um, the first person as far as we can tell by harmonizing the gospels he reveals he's the Messiah to is a Samaritan woman so how do we account for the fact that sometimes Jesus is, what does the law say? What does the law say? What does the law say? Take him to the law and not that. And this is a problem for us because we like programs. We want to, I mean, we're nervous enough sharing our faith, so we feel a lot better if we've got an eight-step, three-step, two-step program. And the problem with that is you end up with a one-size-fits-all way of evangelism. And if I've seen anything in the Gospels and in Acts, that's not, there is no one-size-fits-all. Um, the, the evangelism in the New Testament is very variegated. It is radically different. Um, and so if you're trying, and this is, I think, somehow some of, the, some of these evangelism methods can fall flat precisely because they'll pick one encounter, model everything off of that, and, and not factor in the fact that, okay, well, that's how the Philippian jailer was spoken to. What did they say to Felix 
What did they say at Mars Hill? What did they say at Pentecost in Jerusalem? What did they say? You know, and anyway. Um, but, but there's a general principle, which is God uses the law to silence proud mouths. And when the mouth is silenced and the head is down, then he brings in grace. That's the general principle that I see. That where you see people justifying themselves, people who are not convicted of their sin, the, the law is brought to bear. And, it, and the law is brought to smash them. Um, and it wouldn't be helpful to take somebody like this and simply say, trust in me. Because what would they be trusting in Jesus for? Not to bear their sin, certainly not. Not, not to redeem them from themselves, but rather, you know, I don't know, to add something on top. I mean, this, is, this is a crucial distinction. Most people you meet will be willing to admit they're not perfect. But if that's all you think you need to do, and I've, and I've heard people explain evangelism this way, just get people, just don't even tell them that they're a sinner. Tell them we're all in the same boat, and all of us make mistakes, and none of us are perfect, and if you'll admit that, then Jesus came to, yeah. Seven. If you do that, you end up with this um, sort of the approach that the Mormons take. If you've ever talked to them, their understanding of grace isn't something isn't isn't the biblical idea of grace where God raises dead men right. to life. Right. It's God helps you out a little bit. It, it, the, um, I don't remember the reference in the Book of Mormon, but they have one of their verses is, um, "And grace saves us after all we can do." So it's like God picks up the slack. It's like you're trying real hard. You're doing you're doing most of it, and then God's like, "Okay, here's that extra little nudge that you right. need to make right. it into heaven." Well, and that and that's how Simeon precisely how all these doctrines decline. Because if you're going to minimize sin to we make mistakes, hell is really going to seem like an overreaction. I mean, if we if we truly are decent folk who try hard, but every now and then we mess up, because after all, no one's perfect. You're gonna to have to. You're gonna to have to gut hell, and that's when hell simply becomes. Well, God's a gentleman. He doesn't force people to be. If they don't want to be with him, he won't make them be with him. And hell is just being absent from where God is. That's true. That's. It's not just that, but it's true. And like, oh, well, that's a little nicer. You know, and that, I can. I can handle that a little better. So these things go together. A high view of sin is going to have a high view of the holiness of God next to it. It's going to have a high view of justice. Um, and it's also going to correspond with a high view of a savior, because the, the the extent of my problem corresponds to the extent of my solution, right? So if I have a small problem, a small solution. You know, I got a cold. I take a cough drop, drink some orange juice, right? Um, Ron Ludwig is having a much more rigorous solution because he has a much more rigorous problem, right? And mm -hmm. and so. The, how we understand our problem will correspond to how we understand our Savior and our solution. So a low view of sin always leads to a low view of hell and a low view of Jesus and a low view of God and His holiness. They're all intertwined. Um, and so that's the significance of that. But in an attempt to soft sell or to make the gospel more palatable, people start making the edges fuzzy. And where you end up in is, you know... Um, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and He um, wants you to live your best life now, and He doesn't want to make you feel bad, and Jesus came to help you do that, and He'll give you a hand and help you out. You know, and that's just not the gospel. But, and I, I know I have over-accentuated a little bit, but that's not far off from many churches. Um, 
and we're not doing people any favors. So all, I guess all I'm saying is, is take a page from Jesus, and unless you're dealing with someone, I mean, people, people go to the Philippian jailer. No, the Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. Is this man broken? Yes. Is this man at the end of himself? Yes. Does this man need the law to humble him? No. And they turn into Christ. But if all your evangelism is modeled after the Philippian jailer, you're never going to do something like this, are you? You know what I mean? And so that, that's all I'm trying to emphasize is look at that. And, and if you just make your evangelism this, you'll never know when you're dealing with someone like the Philippian jailer who doesn't need law. The, the danger, of course, is trying to make some programmatic model out of any of these. So we study them and we learn, okay, here's a guy trying to justify himself. Here's a guy who wants to sit in judgment of Jesus. He needs law. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so I don't want to make this the programmatic passage either. So all, we always go out and we do the law. No, because Philippine Jailer, that's not how they handled him. So, so that, that's, that's the thing I'm trying to point out. It's just there is a time and a place for this. And sometimes I think we think that if you don't immediately turn people to Jesus, we've done something wrong. You know? Um, well, that's, we have five minutes. I'll, we do this a lot, and I think we do this a lot with kids as well, children. The first sign, you know, and I, I get it, I'm a parent. The first time your kid shows any conviction of sin, any fear of judgment, you want to immediately take them to Jesus. Sometimes you might want to let the law do its work a bit longer. That's, there's wisdom here. But I'm saying, so often, you tell the kid, you know, something you've sinned, and God, and they look a little upset, and then immediately, but that's okay because, you know, um, Jesus was willing to let this drop here. The conversation was done until the lawyer picked it back up. Right? Jesus was done. Okay, you want to know? I'll give you. I'll, I'll play along. Go do this, and you'll live. And then we go through it again, and and there's some. Indi- we'll see this next week. But there's some indications that the lawyer begins to track with Jesus because first of all, he walks right into the trap. He's got to know where this is going, right? When he says, "Who proved to be the neighbor?" But even the wording he used, the one who did mercy, he gets it. I mean, there's, there's some hope for this lawyer by the end of this. We don't, but the conversation ends. We don't know anymore what happens. Jesus says, okay, go and do likewise. The point's made a little more clearly. I mean, I think in both conversations, Jesus is making the exact same point. You don't really comprehend what God's calling you to. Um, and if you did, <laughs> you wouldn't be asking me, what do I have to go do? Um, so so that's, that's where Jesus was willing to just let this drop. And the guy either gets pricked in his conscience or something, and he picks it back up. Who's my neighbor? Let me go for round two of the same thing. And then it ends. I'm going to do, if there's no other questions, any other questions? Any other thoughts? Going once. Do the unthinkable. There's a Christmas gift to you all. We'll get out three minutes early. God bless. <laughs>